This is episode 47 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events podcast. We're finishing Men's Roundup 2008 with Gary Thomas. This is session four, Sunday morning. Father, I've already been humbled this weekend just by the stories of the men who are here today. Some that are facing really deep and pervasive challenges at home, ones that just won't go away because they've spent a weekend here. But Lord, they've carved time out of their schedules to be here. They're still following you. They're spending time worshiping, Lord. I just thank you for the faithfulness of each man represented here. I think of what Lincoln said that first night of how much better his life would have been if his dad had come to a place like this, like these men have. Lord, I pray that with all of the challenges that have come from your word and through worship, that each man here would know that you were proud of them for being here, that they could receive your favor, that they would know you don't overlook it. Lord, you don't take it for granted. Even though everybody else in their life may take them for granted, you don't. Pray that you can know that this morning, Lord, and that this word might encourage them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alan Thornhill is a British playwright, tells true story of his mother. She was a very godly woman, and as godly women often do, she liked to write Bible verse references at the end of cards and letters that she'd send to people. Now, this is well into the previous century when email and faxes were still the stuff of science fiction. When you're communicating from Europe to the U.S., as Mrs. Thornhill was at this time, you had to send a telegram. And she had looked throughout her Bible trying to find the best verse she could imagine for a young couple about to get married, finally settled on 1 John 4.18, which is a pretty good verse for a couple about to get married. It says, perfect love casts out fear. So she goes, sends a nice congratulatory telegram to this couple and then puts 1 John 4.18 at the bottom. But the guy sending his telegram didn't know his Bible very well, had never heard of a 1 John. He knew there was a John though, thought he'd save her a couple pennies and leave off the one. This is a completely true story, by the way. And if any of you are familiar with John chapter 4, the woman at the well, <laughs> you might be able to guess what happened as this new bride opened up her Bible with her new husband looking over her shoulder. Instead of reading the words, perfect love casts out fear, she read, you have had five husbands. <laughs> and the man whom you now have is not your husband. <laughs> We live in an imperfect world surrounded by imperfect people. What I want to talk about this morning is what is our attitude toward others and even toward ourselves when their incompetency, their sin, their limitations, their failings embarrass us, let us down, frustrate us, make our life more difficult. In fact, think about it. Over the past week or two, when somebody, it might be their incompetency, it might be their sin, wh whatever it is, what has been your attitude when you face that? And what's been your attitude toward yourself when you face that? The Bible has a lot to say for how we should live as imperfect people in an imperfect world. We could go to the Apostle Paul. He's always amazed me because you read his letters and he dealt with such dolt so many times, didn't he? I mean, when he's honest in his letters about the things he had to face, every sin imaginable Paul faced as a pastor, sexual sin, financial sin, people that were just lazy, people that were just having fights. 
And yet he gives us a glimpse in 1 Thessalonians about how he treated these very imperfect people. Here's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.7, reminding him, he says, Remember, we were gentle among you as a mother caring for her children. In spite of their many imperfections, Paul reminded them that we were gentle among you, just like a mom caring for her child. Now, to really set that image into your mind, I want you to think of a first-time mom with a first-time child. You know that whole idolatry of the firstborn thing going on? It's the kind of mom who makes you wash with six different kinds of antibacterial soap before you touch your baby. You know, you got to wear the mask. and, and They just, the exaggerated care. And I... You know, I laugh at it, but I remember when we brought our first daughter home from the hospital just over 21 years ago, I remember being terrified. I mean, I, 20-something kid, I didn't know anything about it. keeping alive a human being, and the nurse just put her in my hands. And I'm thinking, well, that's my first chore. I've got to keep her alive. You know, just something visceral. I, that's what i got to do. So I had to get her home from the hospital. Went to get the safest car seat we could afford, put it right in the middle of the back seat like they say you're supposed to, but I still didn't quite trust it, so I went back into the house, I got some pillows, rolled up some towels. I mean, I had Allison packed in there tight. We could have driven off a cliff, she would have bounced and stayed asleep the way I had her packed in. We just lived about two miles from the hospital, took her home on a beautiful spring day, but that harrowing trip took me about 25 minutes to drive. Because there's no telling how slippery a completely dry road might be when you're first born. Some of you guys, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Now, it's, it's the first born where this has to take place. Because by the time you have three or four, you realize they're not quite so fragile. And Well, put it this way. When the third born's pacifier falls on the ground, it doesn't get boiled for five minutes, you know. You pick it up, stick it back in the mouth, and you're, you're good to go. But keep in your mind, if you would, this image of this first-time mom with her first-time child. And that's exactly how Paul said to the Thessalonians, Remember, that's how we treated you. Like a mother caring for her children. And throughout Christian history, those who have really understood the faith have picked up on this call to gentleness in the way we respond to others failings. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, often called the last of the Puritans, very fiery personality. You may never have heard of him, but you may have heard the title of one of his most famous sermons, one of the most famous sermons ever preached on American soil, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. So you kind of think of him as an angry individual, but even Jonathan Edwards said this, and if we could bring that quote up, please. He said this, gentleness may well be called the Christian spirit. It is a distinguishing disposition in the hearts of Christians to be identified as Christians. All who are truly godly and are real disciples of Christ have a gentle spirit in them. In Jonathan Edwards' mind, there's no such thing as a caustic Christian or a harsh believer. In his mind, to invite the presence of Christ into your life is to invite his character as well, and that is a character of a gentle God. And he says it should so mark us as Christians that when you think of the Christian spirit, it could be called gentleness. Now, the, re the reason I stress this is often when Christians get together, we talk about getting the right message down. And that's important. The gospel matters. Truth matters. Heresy is a real problem. We want to get the right message. 
And a lot of times we'll talk a lot about the methods. How do you have a good marriage? How do you share your faith? How do you handle your finances? How do you handle business? Methods matter too. It's important. But there's a third M that often gets completely ignored, and that's the manner of our faith. The manner of our faith. It's possible to have the right message and what would be an effective method, but does our manner, the way we conduct ourselves toward others, completely undercut the message? And even methods that would otherwise be effective. The reason that Paul and Jonathan Edwards both came to this notion that to be a Christian leader is to be a gentle person doesn't come from some effeminate leaning that they might have on themselves. You read their biographies, you get the opposite picture that these are basically pretty strong caustic personalities in the natural, but they recognize that as ministers they had to adopt the character of Christ himself. And when you look at scripture, the Bible goes out of its way to paint Jesus as a gentle person. In fact, before he even came, Matthew 21.5 repeats a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 that says this, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. It says the Messiah isn't going to come on the back of a camel with an Uzi at his side, ready to blow away the sinners who refuse to repent. In fact, I'd like to suggest that when Jesus approaches Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, he is making a prophetic statement. You don't go to war on a donkey. Right? Think about it. Think about this big epic Hollywood movie. A whole army is going to attack a city, but the whole army is on the back of donkeys. You know, and they're just bouncing up and down as they're trying to... I mean, it's hilarious. It's, you know, it's Peter Sellers now. It's not Mel Gibson at that point. Monty Python, exactly. And so when Jesus chooses a donkey to approach Jerusalem, he's making a statement, I'm not coming here to war against you. And then when Jesus described himself in Matthew 11:29, it's interesting. As I was writing The Glorious Pursuit, a book on virtues and the importance of virtues, one of the things that challenged me is that Jesus almost never uses virtues to describe himself. He was speaking to a largely illiterate culture, and so he liked to use images. On the good shepherd, on the door, on the light of the world, or whatnot. He didn't want him to have to extrapolate from academic exercises, so he just laid out. But there is only one place in Scripture where Jesus used specific, uses specific virtues to describe himself, because I believe it's so close to who he is. He wanted this generation and every generation to follow to be certain of who he is without having to extrapolate from an image. He lays it out. You want to know who I am? This is what I am, Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. I am gentle and humble in heart. That's who I am. And then the early church remembered him as gentle. In first Corinth, or some, sorry, 2 Corinthians 10, 1, Paul is making a strong appeal and he says to them, I appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul isn't arguing that Jesus is gentle here. His whole argument depends on his assumption that when the early church thought of Jesus, they thought of someone who was gentle. He's making his whole case, I, I, I make my strongest appeal to you, which is the nature of Christ himself. In fact, I'm going to be even more specific. I appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I make my appeal. So we have a Bible that predicts Jesus will be gentle. Jesus affirming, I am gentle. And the early church remembering, he was gentle.
Now here's the thing. The gentleness of Jesus isn't that popular in this day and age. In fact, I often hear it ridiculed. I can't tell you how many times at men's retreats like this or people speaking to men, they'll ridicule this notion. They say, oh, Jesus, meek and mild. They're mocking Jesus' own words when they say that. I'm not talking about men becoming effeminate, but we have to understand Jesus was the man and gentleness is what marked him. And the reason we have to embrace it rather than mock it is that's how God is. Here, here's the thing. If you were to go downtown Portland, stop in front of Powell's Books or something like that, stop a hundred people and say, give me a hundred words that describe God. You'd have 300 answers, right? Or I'm sorry, give me three words that describe God. You talk to 100 people, you have 300 answers, right? I would be shocked at the end of that afternoon exercise with those 300 words if one of them was gentle. When people think of God today, they don't think of his gentleness, even though he goes out of his way in Scripture to portray himself in that light. And here's why that bothers me. The consequences for rejecting this God are eternal and they're severe. It's not a pleasant thing to die apart from God's grace. And if somebody's going to face those eternal consequences by rejecting this God, I wish they would at least reject God as he really is, as he reveals himself. Not some caricature or how we decide that we want to describe God in a way that we think we can be proud of. But here's a convicting thing for me as a believer. Why doesn't this world today think of God as a gentle God? Well, maybe it's because his people have totally jettisoned this whole sense of who he is. We don't care about the manner of our ministry. We want to get the message right. If you don't understand it, we're going to blow you away. And we might even have a smile on our face as we do it. Doesn't it stand to reason that if we would adopt the manner of Christ and people kept coming across us, that in the face of their incompetency, in the face of their sin, they notice something different about us. That they might start to think, maybe there's something of God in this. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Well, what about when Jesus cleansed the temple? How is he gentle there? Two things I want to say about that. One, I think we have to be careful that we take something Jesus does and say it's universal for all of us. Here's an example. Jesus, when a guy was blind, spit on the ground, created some mud, and put the mud on the guy's eyes and healed him. I haven't seen any mud-spitting ministries developed by men in this day and age. Jesus walked on the water. I haven't really seen too many walk-on-water clubs as well. When Jesus cleansed the temple, that was a prophetic statement that people were turning a place of worship into a place of commerce. Jesus, as God himself, saying to the Pharisees, his children, supposedly, you will not stop people from worshiping me here. So if we find ourselves in a place like that, as God, where people are preventing us, people from coming to us, yeah, we can have that attitude. The other thing is, I, I don't want to go too far the other way, but here's what I often found. If we don't cultivate gentleness as Jesus did, if we're always harsh and somebody messes up and we need to be strong, how do we show that this matters more than other things? 
If you're harsh as a dad, if you're harsh as a husband because your wife can't find her keys or your son drops his plate or something like and you blow off the top like this is a major thing and then there's an issue that really matters a life-threatening situation or a character issue that really matters and you raise your voice to your wife and your kid it's just more of the same there may be times we have to be strong and firm and it may even seem a little bit harsh but if we're always harsh we'll never be able to have that difference in our demeanor that tells people this really matters. In fact, there's another prophecy about the gentleness of Christ in Isaiah 42.3. A lot of you have read this verse. I'm sure Isaiah says that the Messiah will come and he won't break a bruised reed or even snuff out a smoldering wick. I don't know that Isaiah could find two more fragile images here than a bruised reed and a smaller. A reed is already very fragile on its own. A bruised reed, you barely touch it and it's going to break. A, a smoldering wick represents just a dot of flame on the end of a wick. It's about to go out. If you jostle the candle, all the wax comes out, breaks, you know, snuffs out the smoldering wick. And, and Isaiah would say Jesus is the type of minister that can go to a life that's that fragile, that on the end and spiritually resuscitate that person to life. The importance of adopting this in my own life hit me some years ago when I was with a, a good buddy of mine that went through a very tough situation. I'll call them Doug and Susan, that's not their real name. They were associate, uh, part-time youth pastors at the church we were members. He was going to seminary. They didn't have a lot of money, but very nurturing couple. In fact, they took in a stray cat one time. Cat immediately got sick. They kept taking it back to the vet. Ended up, Doug told me, they spent $600 to keep that stray cat alive. He told me that. It was hard for me to empathize because my empathy for a stray cat, as I mentioned on Friday, runs out at about six bucks. You know, I'm thinking, large bucket of balls on the driving range, stray cat. Large bucket of balls. <laughs> the balls are probably going to win, but... Doug's a better man than me, so he didn't face that. Now, in spite of the fact that they're a very nurturing couple, um, they face a challenge that a lot of couples face that's really tough for a married couple. Really wanted to be parents, had a very difficult time conceiving. Now, they were sharing this struggle. A lot of people were praying for them, and they did everything they possibly could to be an answer to these prayers. In fact, Doug was telling me one time as they were getting ready for a move, I mean, their life was just scheduled to the minute like it often is because they still have their jobs. They're trying to move. They're trying to conceive a child. And, and, and Susan was taking the shots that you got to take and everything for all of that. And they had an appointment with um, a realtor coming up. And they needed to get together physically to try to create a baby at this point. The realtor shows up an hour early just after Susan had taken her shot. So they go down and answer the door. The realtor says, look, I know I'm a little bit early, but happened to be in the neighborhood. I thought I'd just stop by. But look, if you got something you need to do, don't let me stop you. Just go ahead. <laughs> so Doug looks at Susan. Susan looks at that, kind of shrugged. They go upstairs, do their business, splash some water on their faces, come back down, talk to the realtor. Because they were determined to do everything they could possibly do to help God answer their prayers so that they conceive a child and eventually it happened. They conceived a child, they were excited, the whole church was celebrating with them, but then I got a call about five and a half months into the pregnancy. 
Doug told me, Gary, the, the baby stopped moving. We really need you to pray. I remember going into my bedroom and throwing myself face down before the Lord and just pleading with God, Lord, please let this child live. If ever there's a child that will be raised in a home that, that will love and honor and serve you, it, it's a child. Please let this child live. But God, in his own wisdom, chose to take the child to himself. So I remember going to the hospital after hearing the news. They had forced a stillbirth to a, a stillborn child. And there was Susan in the hospital bed. And if you've been in this situation, you know, there's, there's nothing you can say. I mean, sometimes life is just really tough. And after I was just kind of talking with him for a little bit, Doug came up to me and said, Gary, I got to plan a funeral. We got to pick out a coffin. Do you mind going with me? I said, sure, we'll go. So we went to the funeral home, kind of made the arrangements and picked out one of these just small white coffins. Just this, I mean, it broke your heart that somebody that small would need to be buried. But the boy was so small, he could fit in the palm of your hand. So we picked out that coffin and then Doug said to me, Gary, we want, we want to get a bear to bury him with. They'd called him Little Bear or something like that when he was in the womb. He goes, will you, will you come with me and help me pick that out at the mall? I said, sure. So we drive to the mall. This was a huge mall. As we're walking into the mall, we're both just kind of overwhelmed and shuffling. This is one of the worst moments of my life because of all the years praying that Doug and Susan would finally conceive, the, the fear that something might be wrong with the child, the frustration that God didn't answer our prayers like we wish he would have answered them, seeing you know, that coffin we were picking out and now walking to the mall. I mean, I, I'm trying to be strong for my buddy, but I'm feeling just my own sadness as well. We finally go into a, a Hallmark type store. We knew it would have to be a porcelain bear because frankly a, a plush bear would probably be bigger than the child himself. We didn't think it'd look right. And so Doug looks around and he was a guy's guy. He was a wrestler in high school and college. I mean, a real stocky guy. And, and yet his voice was so broken and soft. He was in there and there was this cabinet that had some of these porcelain bears and he found one that he thought really captured the personality of the son he just lost. So he says to this woman, and there was sort of a middle-aged woman when we walked in, it was sort of typical East Coast service, it's almost like, you know, what do you guys want? You know, she's sitting behind the counter in a stool reading her People magazine. And Doug says to her, how much does that bear cost in the set there? She fires back in a real clipped, sharp tone, that bear's part of a set. If you want to buy that bear, you have to buy the whole set. The whole set's $250. You still want to look at that bear? She just didn't want to get off her bench. It was like a sledgehammer. It hit Doug in the chest. I went up, tapped him on the shoulder, said, hey, bud, there's another store like this at the other end of the mall. This is a huge mall. So let's go see what they have there. So now we're beat down a little bit more, shuffling to this other store. We go in where there's this young gal behind the counter, a couple different colors in her hair, a couple different pieces of metal on her face, you know, but, but real spunky personality. It was like, hi guys, how are you doing? And I could still remember how just her attitude breathed life into us because we were kind of on the brink of despair, certainly discouragement here. And Doug looked around and he saw the exact same bear in another display case and in a soft voice, expecting to be disappointed. He said, is that bear part of a set? And she says, it is, but I might be able to sell it to you by itself. Why don't you let me go check? She gets off her stool, goes to the back, talks to her boss, comes back out, says, 
I can sell it to you by itself for $18. Can I wrap it up for you? Doug said, that would be great. And she wrapped it up and we walked out. And I can still remember to this day the difference that these two women made in our lives. One beat us down a little bit more and one encouraged us just by her attitude. But that's not the real point of the story, at least for this sermon. The real point didn't hit me until several days later when I was praying through this and I realized that bruised reeds and smoldering wicks don't wear signs. They don't. We're surrounded by them. This room is filled with them, but they're not wearing neon signs. If you were to interview these two women and ask them, where do you think these guys came from before they walked into this mall? Give them a hundred guesses. They're not imagining that we had come from a hospital after Doug's wife had been forced to give stillbirth, that we had then gone to a funeral home, picked out a white coffin. Ask them, why do you think two guys in their 20s are buying a porcelain bear? Give them a thousand guesses. They're not going to imagine we're buying that bear to place in the coffin of a son who was dearly loved and missed, even though he had never breathed outside of the womb. We were bruised reeds and smoldering wicks at that point, but we didn't have neon signs on us. And I've met some bruised reeds and smoldering wicks this weekend. Sometimes some situations you guys are facing that are deep and pervasive and you're trying to put your game face on, you're trying to be strong and good for you. But guys, they're breaking inside. And when we act in a harsh way, we risk breaking the bruised reeds. We risk snuffing out the smoldering wick. And I remember praying, Lord, if I'm going to be your servant in this world, you've given me your message, give me your manner that I could be like the Messiah who won't wound them. But it's even harder to be gentle at home, isn't it? <laughs> Why is it that sometimes it's easier to be gentle with those that we don't care as much about than with our wife and kids? I remember when my youngest daughter was just about three years old. She's a very chattering type of girl. I mean, you would be astonished at the quantity of words that can come out of that girl's mouth. She, she just, it, one time even a little friend said to her, Kelsey, do you ever stop talking? And Kelsey's response was, why would I? Talking is my spiritual gift. And then she went on to tell us. So we're... She's keeping me company. What I'm trying to do is change a, a headlight on a car, which is always frustrating for me because I'm a mechanical idiot. I am as stupid as they come when it's about mechanical things. In fact, you know, I'll, I'll look at the engine of a car. I get this catatonic expression on my face because to me it looks like an insolvable maze. You put a wrench in my hand and I can feel the testosterone rushing out of my body. Uh, no, I, you know, I'm supposed to know what to do with it, but but I don't. It's not like I haven't tried. In fact, one time I thought, you know, save my family 25 bucks, I'll change my own oil. I'm thinking, high school dropouts do this, right? I've got a master's degree, I've written some books, I can do this. So I get under the car, and I'm spending 20 minutes just trying to get the plug off the drain pan, and I can't get it off. Till I find out the reason why is that I'm tightening it, and so I stripped it, <laughs> and now it leaks. So. My wife has to take it in because I don't want to face down the mechanics and explain what happened. And 
She came home and pretty much said, this ended my mechanical career. Gary, I'm sorry, we just can't afford for you to work on the cars anymore. <laughs> it gets worse. My son was maybe seven at the time. He overheard this and he looked at me with disdain. And he's like, Dad, it's righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. How difficult is that? <laughs> It's one of those things, it skipped a generation. My dad can do it, my son can do it. I am pretty much hopeless. So what we had, I said I had to change the headlight on this car I was working on, and it looked to me like you had to remove about 25% of the front end. Of course, somebody came over later and said how you could slide those out. I couldn't figure it out. But I figured if I don't have the knowledge, I'm at least going to have the tools, right? So I go to Sears and I get this 100-piece deluxe socket set. It's got the American-sized sockets, the metric sockets, the wide hole sockets, the small one, everything I could possibly need. And I'm under the car trying to figure this out, trying not to teach my impressionable little girl any new creative words, you know, just, Lord, preserve my sanctification here in the face of my humiliation. And she gets curious, and guys, you know this, if a little toddler's around a socket set and decides to open it up, is it right side up or upside down? Is it? It's upside down. Are sockets round or are they square? They're round, aren't they? So if you're working on a cement slope about like this, and you've got a gutter at the end of the sidewalk, you could imagine what happens when you hear this little babbling, then this crash, a little two-and-a-half-year-old saying, uh-oh. And I look out into the car, and here's about 86 of these 100 new sockets rolling toward the... Gutter. I'm not a screamer, but I remember it was just sort of the tone. It was just like, oh, Kels. And it probably wasn't any loud. It was just Kels. And that's all it took. Her lips started quivering. She starts to walk up the steps. I realized what was going on. I called out after her. I said, honey, I'm not angry at you. I know you didn't mean to do that. And it's like I turned on a faucet. I mean, the tears are pouring out of her eyes. She runs up, buries her head in my shoulder, drenches my shirt. And I remember holding her thinking, what's up with this? I mean, how is this girl going to survive in the world if this is sending her over the edge? But here's what I learned. And here's why I think God has given some of you men, little girls like mine, that are more sensitive than you can believe. Later that week, I was reading an article written for Christian men about how we can maintain a positive Christian attitude. It talked about dividing your life into seven spheres. You've got your vocational life, your relational life, your financial life, spiritual life, and so on. And so if you're having a difficult time in one sphere, you just focus on the other one. As I looked at all seven of those spheres, I realized how a two- or three-year-old girl has none of those. Uh, physical life is intimidating. Look at a two-year-old's knees and elbows. They're nothing but scrapes and bruises. She has no financial world. She was young enough where her older brother could come up to her and say, Hey, Kelsey, here's a nickel. It's bigger than your dime. You want to trade? She's like, yeah, yeah, good deal. Bigger has got to be better. And, and, and even though I've seen God reveal himself to very young kids, their abstract thinking hasn't kicked in. They can get fuzzy. I know because when my son was that age... And I was traveling one time. Lisa asked him to pray for the meal. He ended up praying to me. He said, dear God, thank you for this food. And we hope you come home soon because I miss you. I want to hug you. We did clear up that theological error, by the way. I don't want you to... 
think I'm quite that arrogant, but I realize that just that Kels, she has no other world to run to. I remember praying, Lord, if I'm going to be a Christian father, I need the manner of the Messiah at home. Because these kids are more sensitive than I could ever imagine. Let me be one who won't break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. Henry Drummond deals with this whole topic in his 19th century classic, The Greatest Thing in the World. Here's what he says. If we could bring up this quote, please. The peculiarity of ill temper is that it is the vice of the virtuous. It is often the one blot on an otherwise noble character. You know men who are all but perfect and women who would be entirely perfect but for an easily ruffled, quick-tempered, or touchy disposition. This compatibility of ill temper with high moral character is one of the strangest and saddest problems of ethics. What Drummond is saying is, I know these guys who wouldn't think to go to a strip club, would never put the money's grocery money on red at the roulette meal, would, wheel, would never go to say these words, anything, but they're so quick-tempered, they're so harsh with people, they're so unyielding with others' failures. He goes, how can, it be, how can they be so godly in one area and fail so greatly in this? I think part of it comes because we don't emphasize manner like we emphasize other sins. And we don't recognize the harm we do to our relationships and our witness and our ministry when we don't address manner. Drummond goes on to say this. No form of vice, not worldliness, not greed of gold, not drunkenness itself does more to unchristianize society than evil temper. For embittering life for breaking up communities, for destroying the most sacred relationships, for devastating homes, for withering up men and women, for taking the bloom off childhood, in short, for sheer gratuitous misery-producing power, this influence stands alone. Guys, I have seen this. I have seen a man and a woman deeply in love as a young couple, and I've seen how over the years, the guy's lack of sensitivity, his harshness toward her, makes her stone cold toward him. I've seen kids growing up in Christian homes where the standard is perfection. They don't believe James 3, 2, that we all stumble in many ways. They think they can raise kids who never stumble. And if the kid even starts to stumble, the response is harsh. It's immediate. It's over the top. The kids feel like they can't even breathe. They are picking, as Drummond would say, picking the bloom off that kid's childhood. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go here with this retreat, but it's so crucial to our relationships that we can adopt the manner of the Messiah. And the Bible doesn't really give us an option. Colossians 3.12 says that we should clothe ourselves with gentleness. In 1 Timothy 6.11, Paul tells us to pursue gentleness. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to answer non-believers with gentleness and respect and to restore fallen believers in Galatians 6.1 in a spirit of gentleness in case we're looking for an out as we always are. In Philippians 4.5, Paul would say, let your gentleness be evident to all. I, I, I challenge you, just open up a concordance when you get home and look at how often gentleness appears in the New Testament and say, why aren't we as Christians known for it? Why don't we hear more sermons about it? Well, how do we get there? How do we get there? First, we have to reject the notion that gentleness means wimpy. 
okay? Gentleness doesn't mean you avoid confrontation. It doesn't mean that you turn a blind eye. It affects how you confront someone. You do it in a way that is redemptive rather than closing doors. It takes strength to be gentle, not a wimp. Think of it this way. I'm sure you guys did this with your kids when they were younger. You know how little kids like to try to act like they can hurt your hand when they're holding your hand? You know, you're holding hands and they'll just try to squeeze. And you say, go ahead. And they've got both hands and they're really trying to make you hurt. And they can't, can they? But then just to show them who's boss, you just kind of... And ow! It's the strong hand that needs to be gentle, not the weak one. Spiritually weak people, they're going to bleed. They're going to blow all over us. That's what we should expect. It's the mature that the Bible calls to respond with gentle. So how do we get there? Real quickly, three cliches. This won't take more than uh, five minutes or so. These three cliches, I can't tell you how helpful they've been when God has brought them to my mind to help me respond in a gentle way. The first cliche is this. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. I would guess everybody in this room, intellectually, in your mind, you know nobody's perfect. But how we resent it in our hearts when somebody's imperfection puts us out. I know in theory a doctor can't be perfect. He's just a guy. But if he's working on one of my family members, if he's given a physical or a checkup to one of my, he better not make a mistake then. I know in theory a mechanic can't be perfect. Everybody has a bad day, but he better not make a mistake just before my family is going off on vacation. See, I really resent it when their imperfections put me out. And I act like I don't make mistakes. When Larry Bird was still playing for the Boston Celtics, he told of a time when uh, he was fouled so obviously in the first quarter, everybody in Boston Gardens saw it except for the ref. And it really hacked Larry. He just couldn't believe it. So he's ragging on this ref the whole time. Can I buy you some glasses? You know, do you know the rules? You want to, I mean, just really giving him a hard time. It's a close game late in the fourth quarter. Celtics have a fast break going. They pass it up to Larry Bird. He goes for a layup, misses the layup. Other team gets the rebound, calls timeout. They're walking toward the bench. Ref comes up behind Larry and says, Hey, Larry, did you miss that shot on purpose? He thought Larry was upset before. I mean, he turns around, fire in his eyes. The ref puts up his hands. International symbol of surrender, right? Lincoln still lives here. And he says, I make mistakes too sometimes. And Larry realized, I'm not a perfect basketball player, and I don't have a perfect ref. Can I say something? You're not a perfect husband. You're not married to a perfect wife. You're not a perfect father. You're not raising perfect kids. You're not a perfect boss or a perfect employee. You're not hiring perfect people or you're not hired by perfect people. You're not a perfect Christian. Your pastor isn't a perfect pastor. If you want to play gotcha for the rest of your life, go ahead. But you're going to wreck every one of your relationships and you won't honor God. We all stumble in many ways. Can we be redemptive and encouraging instead of holding up this false standard of perfection that none of us are going to achieve? Second cliche. It's not a true cliche, but if you're older than 40, you probably remember. Remember Flip Wilson's routine, The Devil Made Me Do It? He's a con, pretty funny. 
We know the devil can't make us do it, but the Bible does tell us that the devil tempts us to do it. 1 Peter 5.8 says, The devil is like a roaring lion prowling around looking for whom he may devour. Maybe it's just me, but haven't you ever been in a situation where you feel like you get hit where you're weakest, when you're weakest, and you say, I feel like I was set up? You ever wonder that maybe you were? <laughs> now here's the situation. I want you to apply that to your family members and your colleagues. It's not just the case that my kids aren't perfect or my wife isn't perfect or the woman who works for me isn't perfect, but there are real spiritual beings, Satan and his demons, who are tempting them to fail, who are trying to sow disunity in our family, in your church. They're trying to sow accusation and judgment and take us stumbling in many ways so that we fall apart from each other. And since all of us have fallen to Satan's temptation, maybe not in the way this brother has fallen, can't we at least have an attitude of redemption saying, you know, you know you can't live this way. But it's different than saying, how could you? How dare you? As if we ourselves have never fallen to Satan's temptations. Let's encourage you. Every one of us are being hit every day by our spiritual enemy. We don't need human enemies in the church. It's not about a game of gotcha. It's how do we encourage each other in the face of Satan's temptation rather than trying to catch people. The third thing is life is tough. That's the third cliche. Life is tough. Life is tough. I remember when I was working in an office, there was this woman who basically reported to me. One morning, she just kind of bit my head off. She just blew her stack. I'm just, it was unprovoked. I'm just thinking, man, I can't let her treat me like this. So I'm going in to confront her. But there's another woman who had seen everything that went on. She said, Gary, before you go in and talk to her, I just want to tell you something. Last month, they had their car repossessed. This month, it looks like they're going to lose their house. And then I thought, of course she snapped. I mean, the pressure in her life has got to be enormous. In a court of law, anybody would find her guilty. But as her Christian brother, I could say, you know what? I can absorb this for you. Probably better than you try to blow my head off than you do it with your husband or your kid. You got to do it somewhere. And so when my kids come home and it's, how was your date? Fine. What'd you do? Nothing. And I just went, yeah. The Holy Spirit sometimes will stop me. Gary, were they tempted today? Were they ridiculed? Did they fail? Are they embarrassed? Now, I'm not saying you don't. If it's a character issue as a dad, you got to address it. But do your kids ever have the luxury of just having a bad day? I've, I've taught that my kids with, with their moms. I mean, they have an incredibly godly woman. But there can be one or two days a month, and you guys know what I'm talking about. It's safe to address it, okay, without any women around to just rile up when we say it. Where I'm like, guys, just, just give her, cut her a break today, all right? This is not going to be a fun day. Just give her space. Do your family members ever have the option of just having a bad day? Life can be tough. We can be discouraged. They can be afraid. You can just know you're failing. Can, can you give people that chance? We don't even have to walk outside of this forum to find bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Brothers, we've been given the message. Christ is God. Christ died. Christ was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. Receiving him, we can be saved. Will we adopt his manner? 
the manner of the Messiah who wouldn't break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. I'm out of time, so I'm going to pray. I'm not sure if you're clapping because I said I'm quitting because I'm out of time or because you like it, but I'll... Let's pray. Father, again, Lord I, Lord, I thank you for being who you are. Lord, if anybody could be harsh with us, it would be you. You see our stuff. You, you could be so harsh with us, and yet you choose to be gentle. Lord, I pray for men here today who have been wounded because they've never seen you in your gentleness. They haven't read these scriptures. They thought that you were the God who plays gotcha. Who's just waiting for him to fail. Lord, I pray they could fall in love with you again as you really are. I pray for those men who have wounded others, their wives, their kids, colleagues, because they know they've been harsh. I pray that your word would wash us, that it would convict us and transform us. And Lord, when we're tempted to blow our temper out, that your spirit would bring one of these three cliches back to our minds, that none of us are perfect. We all stumble in many ways. That we have a spiritual enemy that is tempting every one of us to fail. And Lord, sometimes life in this world is just really hard. We get discouraged. We get frustrated. Lord, I pray that we would be redemptive presences in this world. That we would adopt the manner of the Messiah who won't break the bruised reed or snuff out the smoldering wick. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.